This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 84. Once a year at our church, uh, at Grace Fellowship Church in Rexdale, uh, we always try to go through a short sermon series on delighting in God. And that's one of the, the, the things we do regularly, year after year after year, because we believe that a Christian's delight in God is so central to who they are. And it's very interesting because you may have noticed that when people who are on the outside, they're, they're, they're looking into Christianity and they're looking at Christians, you, you may have noticed that sometimes they, they, they believe Christianity to be a miserable life. What many see is that being a follower of Jesus means you've got to give up your freedoms, you've got to give up your pleasures, you've got to give up your money, and you've got to give up a part of your weekend. Basically, you have to live a life that is oppressive, boring, and full of things that you're not allowed to do. And I mean, there's no real joy in a life like that when you put it that way, right? And I imagine that is exactly what Satan wants people to think. But William Tyndale was right when he said this, The gospel is good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and make him sing and dance and leap for joy. And that's because... That's what good news is supposed to do. No, nobody hears real good news and is filled with sorrow. Good news is meant to produce in people a, a sense of joy and delight and, and, and happiness. Now, the world has a very different understanding of the pursuit of happiness. And, and I think you know this, that it can take many different forms. The pursuit of happiness might be the pursuit of a relationship. It might be the pursuit of a job. It might be the pursuit of praise and recognition. It might be the pursuit of riches and wealth. And I mean, there are just so many things that people can pursue in order to find happiness. But what I want to do today and what I want to show you today is that the Bible clearly teaches that the real pursuit of invincible happiness is the pursuit of God himself. One place where we see this very clearly is in Psalm 84. And I want you to take a look at this psalm with me now. One of the things that you may have noticed as you were following along when I was reading earlier is the repetition of the word blessed. Right? You see that uh, in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Verse 12. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Do you know what another word for blessed is? It's a bit of an interesting word. There isn't um, you know, a very clear translation in the English to what the original language says, but uh, the, the, the sense that we get is that the word means something positive. And, and, and in other words, you could call, you could really translate this word as happy. Many of the English translations, including the ESV, as well as the NIV, I believe, use the word blessed. But here's how the CSB translates Psalm 84, verse 4. How happy are those who reside in your house? Verse 5, happy are the people whose strength is in you. Verse 12, happy is the person who trusts in you. Now, to be honest, I kind of like the CSB version a little bit better because I believe that it helps make better sense of this psalm. Here is a psalm that shows us that real happiness is not found in the perishing things of this world, but in the one true living God. Now, if you look at the superscript at the beginning of this psalm, 
it says to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Not a psalm of David, not even a psalm of Moses, but a psalm of the sons of Korah. And it's important that we understand exactly what that means because the context is going to help us to better understand what the psalm is saying. So let me share with you a little bit about the background context to the psalm. The, the Korahites were a group of people who were tasked specifically to serve and, and, and care for the tabernacle of God, which is the place where God chose to make his presence known in the Old Testament. And here's what it says in First Chronicles chapter 9, verse 19. Korahites were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent. In other words, the Korahites served specifically as doorkeepers of the tabernacle, which you may have noticed was a specific word that came out in our psalm today. Now, one of the other things that you'll have noticed, maybe have, have noticed in the psalm, is that the psalmist is writing these words from a place of deep longing. He, he's actually not at the tabernacle. He, he's not there in the house of God serving, singing, and worshiping the Lord, which is where he wants to be. No, on the contrary, he's somewhere far away, but deeply yearning to be back in the presence of God. We have to understand that these are the words of a homesick man. He's not truly satisfied where he is. And so he's on this pilgrimage, a journey to be in that place where he knows he will find true happiness and joy. Isn't that feeling of homesickness something that we can all resonate with? I mean, we're often tempted to think again that we're going to be happy if only we're in that relationship. And then we get there and we realize that it's not everything that we imagined it to be. Or we're only going to be happy if we get that job, but then... After a short season, you find yourself feeling a little bit discontent and wanting a change. Or, or if only we had this much money, then we'll be truly happy. But you get there and you realize that it's actually not enough. And as the old saying goes, money cannot buy you happiness. It doesn't matter, ultimately, if we have all of the pleasures of the world in our grasp. There is still something that is missing in our hearts. There is still a void that none of these things can actually fill. And that is because you and I were created to find our happiness, not in the created things of this world, but in the creator himself, who is the greatest good in all of the universe. Friends. Here's the, the big idea that I want you to take away from today. We are all homesick people until we find our home in the Lord. We're all homesick people until we find our home in the Lord. And so if you want to find true happiness, you can follow along in your bulletin there. The first point is this, long for the presence of God. Look again at verse 1 with me in Psalm 84. The psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So, so again, from, from a distance, the, the psalmist is pondering the dwelling place of the Lord. And, and it's like he has no words to express how truly lovely this place is. 
All he knows is that every single part of him, every fiber of his being wants to be in that dwelling place of God. Just look at verse 2. And notice there how he mentions his soul, his heart, and his flesh. In other words, what he's doing is he's describing his whole being, from his inner person to his outer person, from his very soul to his very flesh. There is no part of him that does not desire to be in the house of God. Now, I think it's important to realize at this point that the psalmist is not specifically talking about the place itself. It's not like he's completely enamored by the physical tabernacle with all of its beautiful physical artifacts and everything else in there. What makes the place so lovely is not the place itself, but the one who dwells there. Look again at verse 2. Realize here that the psalmist is not singing to a physical place, but who is he singing to? He's singing to a living God. It's, It's not a dwelling place, but it is God's dwelling place. It's not a random court, but it's the courts of the Lord. God himself is what makes the place so lovely and so beautiful. And if God were absent, then all of the loveliness would be gone with him. What the psalmist ultimately desires, what he longs for, what he yearns for the most in this world is the one true living God. And maybe this is a good point just to pause here and ask you to reflect on this question. Is God the object of your longing? Is God the one that you truly desire most in this world? Or are there other things that are competing for the affections of your heart? Friends, nothing in this world will bring you joy and satisfaction like the living God. And this psalm is going to help us to understand why that is the case. Look at what the psalmist says next in verse 3. The psalmist goes on and he writes, Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now, as, as a psalmist is, uh, continues to think about the tabernacle, he's, he's thinking about how even some random birds find a home in the dwelling place of God. Now, do you know what sparrows were commonly known for during uh, this time and in this part of the world? Sparrows were a symbol of worthlessness. They, they, they were so common that no one really thought much about them or cared for them. In in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, and you may be familiar with what Jesus says here, he, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And the whole point there is that they're cheap. They're basically worth nothing. You can buy two sparrows for just a penny. And I would think maybe in our um, Toronto downtown uh, con- you know, context here, the, the equivalent would be something like the pigeons in downtown Toronto. Right? You, you just see them everywhere. They're, they're, they're flying all over the place. They make a home everywhere. They, they poop on everything. Nobody likes pigeons in Toronto because they're just so common. Nobody's paying money to keep pigeons in a cage. I should say, the, the last time that I preached this at my church, uh, one of the ladies came up to me right after the sermon, and she said, my father used to collect pigeons. 
So maybe I shouldn't say nobody. Most people, I can say this with confidence, don't like pigeons. Amen? (laughs) Pigeons, sparrows, they're a symbol of worthlessness. What about swallows? Do you know what they're typically known for? Swallows in this time, as the psalmist is writing this, understood swallows to be a symbol of restlessness. And so when Solomon uh, writes in in Proverbs 26, he he talks about how the swallows are always flying. And and that's what they're known for. They're, they're, They're known as birds of freedom that fly continuously without ever stopping and without ever being able to settle down. But notice what happens in verse 3, at the altars of the Lord. A worthless bird finds a place of belonging, and a restless bird finds a place of rest. And friends, I think this is a beautiful and wonderful picture that shows us what the heart of God is like. His presence is a place where the worthless and the restless find a home. Now, again, I don't know a lot of you. I see a lot of new faces here, but maybe there are some of you coming in here today and you're feeling a little bit like a sparrow. Maybe there are circumstances in your life and maybe there are people in your life that are making you feel worthless like a sparrow to the point where it feels like no one likes you, no one desires you, no one wants to invite you or welcome you into their home and into their life. But but here is God who says, come and find your home at my altar. Or maybe you feel a little more like a swallow. You feel kind of restless in life. You're never really satisfied. You're never really able to, to settle your heart down. Life is just exhausting for you. And to you, God says, come and find your rest at my altar. The, the, the point here is this. If God would allow even sparrows and swallows to find a home in his presence, how much more those who are created in his image and after his likeness? How much more his very own people? It's interesting here that the psalmist says that the sparrow finds a home and the swallow is a place to rest at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. One of the questions we ought to ask is, why why does he specifically use the word altar? We're talking about tabernacle. We're talking about temple. We're talking about the dwelling place of God. Why not use any of those words? Why talk about the altar specifically? Well, it's because the psalmist wants us to understand that the function of the altar is essential when it comes to being in the presence of God. What, what, What I mean is this. You couldn't just walk and waltz into the presence of God whenever you wanted to. Something had to come first, and that something is called sacrifice. During the days of the Old Covenant, you as an Israelite would have to go into the tabernacle, and and the priest would find an animal without blemish or spots according to all of God's word, and they would sacrifice that animal on the altar on your behalf in order to make atonement for your sins. And, and only then were you, as a sinner, able to draw near to the presence of a holy God. That's what it was like in the days of the Old Covenant. But for us, we need to think about this a little bit differently because we're living in the, a, a new covenant. 
And that means we don't go to a specific place or to a specific altar in order to draw near to God, but we go by faith to a specific person. And I want you to just listen to these verses from the New Testament and how they talk about Jesus being the better temple and the better sacrifice. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the author writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 26, Jesus speaking of himself said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Ephesians 2.18, for through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, the reason why we don't go to a specific place and make continual sacrifices on a physical altar is because Jesus Christ made the final sacrifice on the altar of the cross. That was a once and for all sacrifice. And so for us living in the new covenant, we, by, by coming to Jesus and believing in his sacrificial death, every worthless and restless sinner can enter into the presence of God and find rest for their souls in him. To be in the presence of God is not a sorrowful experience. It's not the miserable life that some unbelievers think it is. On the contrary, look at what the psalmist says next in verse 4. Psalmist writes, Blessed, happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. In other other words, happy are those who reside in the presence of God, who is altogether wonderful and beautiful. See, if you want to be made right with the Lord... If you want to be in a relationship with the all-satisfying God of the universe, the one who gives a worthless a home and a restless a place to rest, then you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to the one because he is the only way to enter into the joy-filled presence of the living God. Jesus is our destination for true happiness And if we come to him, then there is, in one sense, we we can say that we've reached our destination. If we cross that finish line of faith, we can say that, yes, we have discovered real happiness. But there is another sense in which the journey still goes on until we enter into glory and see our dear Savior face to face. Because at that point, we will experience an even greater measure of happiness and, and, and I think you know what I mean by that, right? Because as we go on, even as Christians in this broken world, this doesn't really feel like home, does it? I think the last two years has made that absolutely clear. This does not feel like home. We are still on a spiritual pilgrimage through this world that is filled with pain, suffering, trials, adversity, viruses, and wars. But friends, make no mistake, there is real joy, not only to be found in the destination, but also in the journey itself as we learn to find our strength in the Lord. So here's point number two, find your strength in the Lord. Verse five, the psalmist goes on and he says, blessed 
are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. You see, the the misunderstanding here is that happiness isn't found in, in an easy and comfortable journey to our final destination. I mean, sometimes we can be tempted to think that life would just be so much easier, be so much more delightful if it wasn't such an uphill battle. But when you think that way, you miss the fact that there is a unique joy to be found in a difficult journey as you experience the strength of God carrying you through day by day. If life was a pleasant walk in the park on a sunny day, then you know yourself well enough to, I think, understand this. You you would be tempted to think that you don't need God at all. You don't need his strength. You don't need his help. But it's the very challenges and the hardships of the journey that expose our weakness and remind us that we cannot do life on our own. But here is where the paradox lies. One of the great Christian paradoxes. When we come to grips with our own weakness, that is where we can find a unique sense of joy knowing that God is strong enough for us. So how does one actually find strength in the Lord? What what does that actually look like practically as it walks and as it talks? Well, Well, it begins this way. It begins by acknowledging your weakness. Again, it's coming to terms with the reality that, yeah, you don't have the strength to do this on your own. And then it means turning to the Lord in humble prayer and asking him in faith to give you the strength. And then you need to trust that he is with you and for you. And then it means going and walking in obedience to his will and his word. Because we know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who are truly able to acknowledge their weakness and turn to him. And so what this psalm is saying is that happy are those who humbly depend on the Lord for strength. Verse 5 goes on and says, again, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. That's probably one of the most difficult parts of this psalm here. It's kind of baffled a lot of uh, Bible scholars and commentaries in terms of what this actually means. But, but, but here's my understanding of, of this little part of the verse. If you could look into the kind of heart the psalmist is describing here, what you would find is a single-minded focus on being in the presence of God. There are no detours or other roads in this heart's desires or affections. There isn't a road or a detour that's going this way or that way. This is a heart that is fully and completely oriented to the Lord. It is a highway to Zion. If you want to get to God, then you want to jump on this highway. And and when you meet someone who is like this, whose heart is a highway to the Lord, here's the effect that they have on their surroundings. Look at verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The valley of Baca is only ever used here in the Bible. There, There is no... It's hard to actually pinpoint whether or not this was a real place. But the Valley of Baca sounds a lot like the Valley of Weeping in its original language. So we we understand this to be symbolic of a place of weeping. 
We also know, based on the context, that it's a place of desolation and sadness. It's an arid place that is lacking in life, like a scorched wilderness or a desert, a dry desert. But when a person who is depending on the Lord and delighting in God goes through this kind of parched land, it says they make it a place of springs. The, the image you're supposed to get here is, is of a rainfall that covers a desert and transforms it into a beautiful, vibrant paradise. That, that is symbolic of the effect happy Christians have on their surroundings. Now, yes, even though we are coming out of this pandemic, the, the reality is, even if this pandemic is far behind us, until Christ comes, we are still going to be living in a broken world. Our journey here on earth is filled with seasons of walking through the Valley of Baca again and again and again. There are people all around us every day and every week who are feeling discouraged and defeated. People who are brokenhearted and weeping over their circumstances. And maybe some of those people are sitting beside you right now. And do you know? what they need from you. Not only do they need your faithful ministry of the word, not only do they need your prayers, not only do they need your acts of loving service, but they need you to be personally walking in the strength of God with a heart that is fully devoted to him because that is a life that is spiritually nourishing to the souls of others. Haven't you experienced that before in your own life? I mean, you, you meet a Christian who is, just, who is just so genuinely in love with the Lord and, and just being around such a believer encourages and strengthens your heart. Brothers and sisters, be that kind of a Christian. If you want to know how to serve others in the church, it is not only through the formal ministries inside and outside the church. Be the kind of believer who is always walking in humility and prayerfully seeking the strength of God. Be the kind of believer who truly loves God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because when we are delighting in God to the glory of God, that is good for all people. That's actually the vision statement of my church at Grace Fellowship Church. Delighting God to the glory of God for the good of all people. When our hearts are just so completely in love with God. That is a neglected ministry that we don't really think about, but it's one that the church so desperately needs. The church needs your holiness. The church needs your faithfulness. The church needs you to be genuinely and sincerely delighting in the God of your salvation. So how's your walk with the Lord? How is your love for Christ? Friends, if you live this way, depending on the Lord and fully delighting in him, your heart will be happy. Others will be blessed around you. And God will give you the grace to endure in this journey until you see him face to face. That's where we go to in verse 7. Beginning in verse 5 again. Uh, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 7, they, those kinds of people, go from strength to strength 
Each one appears before God in Zion. I mean, we, we, we look at the kind of world that we're living in, and, and our spiritual pilgrimage sounds a little bit exhausting. We hear everything that's going on, especially in our own context with the pregnancy care center and, 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 and all the secularization of our society, and it is not an easy life to be a Christian in Toronto. It sounds exhausting. But, but Christians who find their strength in the Lord will never run out of energy. That, that's what it means when the psalmist says they go from strength to strength. It's not strength to weakness. It's not like it, you just have strength for a little bit of time and then you grow weary and then you fall short. I mean, just think about it. When you're tapping into the infinite power of God, how can you ever run out of strength? The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40 verse 30, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. In spite of every valley of Baca and every mountain of trouble before you, the Lord in his strength will carry you to the very end until you appear before him in the final heavenly Zion. So trust in the Lord. Find your strength in him. As the Lord exposes your weakness, boast in your weakness. We, we can be so tempted to despair over our weaknesses, and yet the Bible calls us to boast in our weakness because it's in that moment where the power of Christ rests on us. So if you want to find a true happiness, then long for the presence of God. Find your strength in God. And lastly, trust in the promises of God. The psalmist transitions in verse 8 from musings about the dwelling place of God to the reality of his own situation. It, it, it kind of feels like up until now he's been daydreaming about that, that happy place with all of the happy people. And then all of a sudden he snaps back to reality and, and he cries out with a loud voice, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. You may have noticed that the title, Lord of hosts, or in the NIV version, Lord Almighty, is also repeated three times in this psalm. In verse 1, verse 8, and verse 12. And, and, and it means that, that God is the Lord of the heavenly armies. It, it, it's a title that speaks to his supremacy and his almighty power. But in verse 8, the psalmist also cries out to God as the God of Jacob. And, and this too tells us something about God. If you remember Jacob in the Old Testament, he, he was basically the worst of all the patriarchs. He was a deceiver. He was a liar. Somehow he wrestled with God. And yet God still showed him mercy and entered into a covenant relationship with Jacob. And, and so as the psalmist prays, he acknowledges God as the one who is both all-powerful and all-merciful. And to this great God, he prays, verse 9, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of of your anointed. The psalmist prays for God to look with favor upon the Messiah. 
That, that, that's what your anointed means. It's referring to the Messiah, God's chosen deliverer. When, when the psalmist was writing this, he was likely referring to a Davidic king. The people of Israel would often pray to the Lord that, that God would bless the king because to bless the king means to bless the people. If the king were to fall in his reign or fail in his mission, then who would suffer from this kind of tragedy? It would be his people. It would be his kingdom and, and the citizens of his kingdom who would now be vulnerable to the attacks of others. And so the king acts as a shield for his people. And so the Lord and so the psalmist prays, bless the king. Look with favor on the face of your anointed. And now as we read this text from this side of the cross, we understand this ultimately to be a prayer for God to look on the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's holy anointed king and promised deliverer. And, and for us, we have the benefit of knowing that we can actually be grateful because God has fully answered this prayer in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not fail in his mission. Jesus has not fallen from his reign. Through his death on the cross, he has conquered over Satan, sin, and death. And God did not leave Christ in the grave, but he raised him up on the third day and seated him at his right hand to rule and reign in an invincible kingdom forever. Friends, Jesus is still on the throne today. And God the Father has looked with favor and blessing upon the face of the Messiah, Christ our King. And as the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, God, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And because of this wonderful truth, the psalmist says next in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. When the psalmist is comparing a day in God's presence with a thousand days anywhere else in the world, He's basically saying there is no comparison. Even in the most favorable places with all the world's pleasure within your grasp, none of it would be better than the joy of even being a lowly servant in the Lord's house. And that's what the psalmist says next in verse 10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, remember that at the beginning of this message, we talked about the Korahites and how they served as doorkeepers in the temple of God. If you really think about it, that doesn't sound like the most glamorous ministry, does it? The doorkeeper, right? Let's be honest, there are other ministries that maybe look far more attractive and sound far more superior in comparison but let me tell you a story about a man who thought this way and what ended up happening to him. In Numbers chapter 16, and you may be familiar with this, we learn about Korah's rebellion. Do you know who Korah is? Korah is the father of the very sons who wrote this psalm. He is the father of the sons of Korah. Remember, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And when we look in Numbers 16, we read the story about how Korah and his people, even though they were serving in the tabernacle as keepers of the tent, 
they decided to rebel against Moses and Aaron because they didn't want that inferior position as temple servants. They wanted that superior priesthood of Aaron. They wanted to do what Aaron was doing. And what Moses did in in kindness and in grace was he tried to help Korah realize that it was no small thing to be set apart to serve in the temple of God. It's no small thing. God has given you this special blessing to actually be in a place where you can be near the presence of God. Korah, you should be happy about this. But refusing to listen to any of this, Korah and his people continue to rebel. And then it says in Numbers chapter 16, verse 31, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belong to Korah and all their goods. In other words, God completely wiped them out. According to Numbers 16, All the Korahites were killed that day. But interestingly enough, when you read a little bit further in the book of Numbers and you go to chapter 26, the author starts to summarize the same story again, but we get an important detail that was left out from before. And although Korah and his people were destroyed in that event, it says in Numbers 26, verse 11, but the sons of Korah did not die. They were the sole survivors of the Korahites. And and these sons went on serving in the house of God with humble and glad hearts. The difference between what happened to Korah and his sons should be a reminder to all of us that it is far better to serve the Lord in the house of righteousness than to sin against the Lord in the house of wickedness. And unfortunately, Korah chose the latter. And look what happened to him. Look what happened to all the people who followed in his footsteps and in his leadership. They were met with swift judgment and complete destruction. But the sons of Korah, who served as humble doorkeepers, they went on being able to joyfully serve in the presence of the living God. And not only that, they wrote eight of the 150 Psalms that actually turn out to be many favorites for Christians. We're talking about Psalm 42, Psalm 43, Psalm 84. These Psalms that we find ourselves going back to again and again were written by the sons of Korah. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He wrote, To bear burdens and open doors for the Lord is more honor than to reign among the wicked. Every man has a choice, and this is ours. God's worst is better than the devil's best. God's worst is better than the devil's best. It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell prestigiously in the tents of wickedness. And I think the Prince of Preachers is right. Every single one of us has a choice to make. We can either choose to be proud like Korah and sin against the Lord, or we can choose to be humble like the sons of Korah and serve the Lord with joy. Brothers and sisters, you have a choice. Be like the sons of Korah. 
Whatever, where, wherever God has you, whether it's on the, the, the greeting team or the kids ministry or the band or prayer, preaching, serving, speaking, giving, whatever it is, whatever ministry God has you in, formal or informal, serve faithfully and serve humbly and know the joy that comes from being near to the Lord. And isn't that what Jesus said? It is more blessed, more happy to give than it is to receive. I think we all know this, that when we're going low and when we're living faithfully and serving our brothers and sisters, that is a happy, happy experience. Serve the Lord faithfully. Our Christian pilgrimage is not an easy one. Our journey is often through enemy territory in the, in the spiritual darkness of night. But we can still take heart and be glad when we trust who God is and what he does for his people. So verse 11, he goes on and he writes, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. First we see here that, that God is a sun. What, what, what does a sun do? The, a sun produces heat and gives warmth on a cold day. It also produces light to illuminate the path before you so that you could clearly see where you're going. Not only that, but God is a shield. And a shield has only one primary function. That's defense. A shield protects you from the attacks of your enemies and keeps you safe. So, so this is who God is to his people. He is a sun above you and a shield around you. And as you go back into the world and as you're living your lives day to day, that is a great picture to have in your mind. Sun above you. And a shield around you. That is who God is to his people. God also bestows favor. Which another word for that is, is grace. He gives grace to his people. And God bestows honor. Which is another word for glory. Likely referring to the future glory. That will be given to us on that last day. And then there is one more thing that God does for his people. At the end of verse 11. He says no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? And we need to be careful here, because if we take that literally, it could be very dangerous. God is not promising to give us a million dollars with a nice house and an expensive car, nor is he going to give you that job, relationship, recognition, or anything else that your heart really desires. Sometimes what we think is good for us isn't actually good for us, and praise God that he knows that. The Lord in his infinite wisdom might actually give us more trials and more valleys of Bacca. But even if that's the case, we have a sacred promise that God works all things together for what? For good. Whatever what, what you may have noticed here is that the Lord's goodness comes with a condition. It says, you must walk uprightly. And, and again, this is another place where we need to be careful because this doesn't mean perfection. Every time you see the words like blameless and upright, it doesn't mean perfection. After all, we know that Jesus is the only one who is truly perfect and sinless. But what this word means is integrity, walking with a clear conscience before the Lord. When you sin, confessing your sins to the Lord and seeking his forgiveness. This means obeying his commandments 
and trusting in his ways. And when we walk uprightly by the strength that God provides, there is truly no good thing that he keeps from us. Again, we need to be careful that we don't understand this to mean that God is just going to give us everything that we want in this world. In the context of this psalm, we learn that all good things, that all the good things God gives us is his presence, his strength, his light, his protection, his grace, and his glory. And do you know what all those things have in common? It all belongs to God. It's all a part of who he is. In other words, God gives us more of himself because he is the very essence of all that is good. Brothers and sisters, there is great joy to be had when you walk faithfully with your God because it is God who you're walking with. He is the greatest good in all the universe. And so the psalm ends with this word, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Even if the Lord leads you into a place you don't want to go, even if he should take away from you that which you consider precious in your sight, happy, truly happy is the heart that lays aside, lays aside all the, 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 the doubts, remembers who God is, and takes him at his word. As I said before, the things in this world, sins and the perishing things of this world, will never satisfy your longing hearts. And that's because your affections were designed for something or rather someone much greater than anything this world can ever offer. So you can go from here and you can pursue happiness in many different ways. Many have and many have fallen into the danger of pursuing happiness in the perishing things of this world. And if that's you, then you will always remain homesick in this world. But if you want to truly pursue everlasting happiness, then brothers and sisters, pursue God. Long for his presence. Find your strength in him and trust in his wonderful promises.